it's a birth. So what you're doing when you create these spaces is you are birthing a space. I have two daughters and I look at the school as we gave birth. We gave birth as a community. (laughs) We gave birth to a school and then now we have to keep it alive and then work on its gaining independence from us. You can't keep using tools of oppression and expect to raise free people. That was the voice of Sonia Fernandez LeBlanc, who would be familiar to you if you've been rocking with us for a while. She has been on the podcast a few times, most recently episode 97. Sonia and I, we talk about a lot of different aspects of this work, including the self-care aspect, including the person behind the work. It's such an important part of it. We tend to talk about the logistics to focus on the questions that people ask us and not so much the ones that we're asking ourselves or the ones that sit behind the primary questions, the deeper, maybe more personal questions. And what I love about Sonia's entire vibe is that she addresses all of that. So she is going to kick off this series for us around parent founders. Episode 108, the show notes page is raisingfreepeople.com forward slash 108. You will get details about Sonia's journey, including links to her site, links to her previous episodes. And if you're following along on Patreon, you'll get the extended version of the conversation that Sonia nurtured with us in this episode. She is going to be talking a little bit first about the backstory, the motivation, and then she's going to go into the logistics. All of the episodes, the next two or three episodes around parent founders will have that kind of flow to it. A little bit of the backstory and then going into the logistics. Sonia is based in Nashville, Tennessee, and I think you're going to love this story. She talks about how it began. She talks about her breakdown. She talks about the role of postpartum in her pursuits, in her focal points and how that shifted over time. She talked about finding the Sudbury model and what it did for her. And that's particularly why I'm starting out with Sonia's story, because I also want us to remember that there are so many options out there, including existing models and also the opportunity to create something completely outside of anything you've ever seen or heard, imagining and planning and allowing for structure to emerge that's completely new. Sonia found that what she needed and what her community responded and is responding really well to is the Sudbury model. It's interesting because that's a model that I don't particularly connect with as liberatory, but I don't need to in order for it to be effectively helping families liberate themselves and helping children practice liberation skills. That is what is so beautiful about actual diversity, not diversity for the sake of the buzz term or whatever. When you really look at the different ways, and Sonia will mention it here, that we get to our liberation, we got to figure out how to leave room for people to design and practice that liberation in ways that make sense for them without feeling like we need to approve it, right? We can be going in the same direction and get there going different paths, because I for sure would not take the Sudbury path. And again, 
I don't need to. I don't need to get it. I don't need to take it. I don't need to validate it in order for it to be effective and liberatory. And in the case of Sonia's community, it has been. So for anybody who is interested in hearing how one particular woman and her family got to the point of founding a school, you're going to really enjoy this story, even if the model that Sonia is using is not the one that resonates with you. You'll still get a lot of the details that I think go across the board when folks get together and decide to do something about what they need when it comes to learning and living in community with children. So let's listen to Sonia. I have two master's degrees in education and taught in the traditional school system for over a decade, starting in private Catholic schools, teaching Spanish, and then moving into our local public school system. And then I moved to Baltimore and taught at a school for kids with dyslexia and then helped open a charter school in Baltimore City. And I had a nervous breakdown because I was 35 and had two babies under two and had just had a baby and had some postpartum. Anyway, life-altering event, right? And so then from that, we decided to come back to Nashville and my husband, Tommy, stayed in Baltimore to work. And I was here with my girls, staying with my mama, and we just started making some decisions about like what was important and what wasn't and the hoops that we've been jumping through to do all the things that we were supposed to do because society said that that's how you're a successful person. They didn't work for us. Like we did all the things and I still had a mental health breakdown that people don't ever talk about, but I think that's changing. And we started rethinking like what we want for our kids. And I feel like that seed had been sown in 2011. This all happened in 2013. But when I had Elena in 2011, my firstborn, I was teaching and I was miserable. And I was like, I don't want my kid in this environment. What do I do? I remember that I went to a therapist and for the first time that I'd ever been to a therapist. And I told her the problems that I saw with like my kid coming into this world and our education system is broken locally statewide nationally and I was like creating this little umbrella and I was like it's my job to fix it all (laughs) and the therapist was like no you cannot fix it all and she told me I had a god complex and so (laughs) I said all right I can't fix it all but like my soul was like I need to find a way to at least fix it for my kids. And so from there, when we were in Baltimore and I had the nervous breakdown after baby number two, it all started to feel correct. Like it all was like, this is what was supposed to happen. I was supposed to have this moment where we lost everything so that I could go home so that Tommy and I could reevaluate things. These babies are babies. There's time to figure this out. And so I started doing the research that I had begun while I was teaching 
Ken Robinson was my gateway drug. So I feel like that's true for a lot of people. So I had started like that, like schools are killing creativity. And I went from there and I started looking at homeschool and homeschool just felt like bringing the broken into your home, which didn't feel right. And so I found unschooling and I had a couple of friends who unschooled. So I started like reaching out to them. And then in 2015, so two years later, Tommy had gotten back to Nashville. We all decided that I had been working and doing some at-home work, like teaching online, teaching, but it was taking up so much time. And we decided that we were all going to stay together. My mama, who works full-time, Tommy, who had a a job full-time, and me, and that I was going to stay with the girls and we were going to try this unschooling thing. And at this point in 2015, Fern was two and Elena was about to turn four. And we were like, let's just play with it. Let's see. Right around that time, I met a lady who was in Baltimore and she, her husband and Tommy, my husband had worked together at the Space Telescope Science Institute in in Baltimore. They were both astronomers and they had their son at a school in Baltimore that was the Sudbury Arts and Ideas Sudbury School. And I was like, what is this? And she was like, you know, I think you would be interested in this. This is something that we're doing. And her son was older. He was like nine, maybe. And so I was like, I've never heard of this. And so I started looking at it I started reading about it and I was so upset with how broken society was and how it wasn't broken, but it was functioning exactly as it was said to function only for specific people, really. I decided I need to look into this really deeply. And so I got all the books on it and I started reading the books and because the Sudbury model, Sudbury Valley was the first in 1968. And it stemmed from a school in Great Britain from the 1920s called Summerhill. And I think that that was kind of the original inception, A.S. Neal and then the Daniel Greenberg and his founders, co-founders at Sudbury Valley, they kind of took the Summerhill model and they kind of added a judicial structure that was more in keeping with that that's in the United States. So it was all the things that I wanted that I thought we should be doing in school, but it was this model and it was self-directed though. So it was like, and I know that Sudbury does not like the comparison of unschooling and Sudbury. So it was the self-directed umbrella, right? The children can have that personal freedom to choose the path that they want to take. That was so like important to us as we began the process of unschooling and what that looked like. But it held for me, it kind of harkened back to why I went into education in the first place and why I was so devastated with what education, the institutions of education in our nation are not what they are supposed to be. And this offered that combination for me. And I had been excited about unschooling, but there had been something inside of me that was saying, 
this is not enough. Like it's not enough for you to sit in the privilege of getting along with your mama enough to live with her so that she works full time and then your husband works full time and we all live together and their two paychecks allow for me to be here and support my kids. And that was not the case when we were in Baltimore. We did not have that support. And we had to go to the job. Tommy was an astrophysicist and he graduated from Vanderbilt and that was where the job was. And it was not around family. So we went to Baltimore and I worked and I was pregnant and I had a a one-year-old in a daycare and she was sick all the time and we were all alone and just overwhelmed because We were in a whole new place. We didn't have a support system and we grew a support system because you do that to survive. You have to, you have to bring human beings around you and we did it, but it still was us in isolation a lot of times because we couldn't afford to like go out and have dinner with new people. We were in this new city and we had made a lot of sacrifices to be there and we both were working our butts off and we had two babies and I went off the deep end for multiple other reasons too. And I think postpartum again was a part of that, but I could not have done this. I would have had to just put my kids in whatever school I could get them to go into, which would have been the public school system when the time came and I would have just kept on working. And that was no longer a possibility, right? So we had to completely shift our entire worldview of how things worked. And so it became possible when we got back here and we got back to Nashville and we looked at our situation and we were like, there's no reason why we can't all stay together and take care of one another and let these girls have this freedom. And so We were doing that. And then this model like struck me. I mean, it knocked me down. And I knew that this was what the path was. Like, I just knew it, whether I wanted to do it or not. And honestly, I was recovering from 36 years of jumping through all the hoops that you were supposed to jump through. But it was just the perfect timing. It was perfect timing because I did have time. Because the girls were really little and they took naps still and they just played for hours. And I would sit there with them and be reading and be on Facebook trying to rally a community around it. I knew that our community needed something like this because every community needs to have this freedom so that families who can't afford to just quit their job and hang out with their kids or they can't move in with their mom and all live together in community and that doesn't work out to have these options and have them at a non-exorbitant amount of money. So that's what we began. So in 2015, that was when it began and we started doing the research and we started figuring out and jumping through the hoops and finding people to support us and to help us. And then in that, we created this community that we all went in together and we made it happen. And it has been 
a long journey, three years it took us to open the school. And we are a semester and a half in. It was worth every second of it. It was worth all the hoops and the years of like crazy expectations that Tennessee had for starting a school that had no government intervention. But it has all been worth it. And it all came from a spiral, a meltdown, and kind of an end, a paradigm shift. And from it, we've created this really wonderful space. And it just goes to show that anybody can do it in any situation. You just have to think outside the box in a way that will allow for you to connect with the people that you need to connect with. We had a lot of unexpected that came up throughout our time founding Nashville Sudbury School. There was like some jealousy in the road, (laughs) not really, but I would see other schools that were in other states that I'd hear their stories or read about them or talk to somebody who had started a school. They always seemed to be like, well, we found a group and then six months later we were open. That was not the case for us at Nashville Sudbury. When we began the process of starting or at least researching how we could open this model in Nashville, we immediately started coming up upon (laughs) stumbling blocks. The first thing that I feel like I need to address is how reaching out to our greater community created a community around the idea of Nashville Sudbury School coming into existence. We created a social media platform that reached out to a segment of our community that we were just lucky to have in Tennessee. So for all of the crazy laws that we had to jump through to start the school, Tennessee has a really thriving homeschool, eclectic homeschool community, a secular homeschool community that is based primarily is Nashville, I feel, because we are a little plot of more progressive in a sea of very Christian conservative communities. And I think that the fact that We are in the Bible Belt where homeschooling is historically the thing. There's been this community that's come and kind of taken advantage of the laws and worked to create more laws that allow for homeschooling freedoms that just make it a really beautiful place to choose how you want to educate your children. And within that, created communities that are really thriving secular communities that we were able to tap into. The farm, which I don't know if you're familiar with the farm, but it was dubbed as a hippie commune in the 1960s. And now it is this thriving space in Summertown, Tennessee. You can look it up, go to the farm website. There they have like midwifery and solar energy and they do workshops on permaculture. But anyway, they had a free school there. And so we reached out to them because they kind of are the home base for this eclectic homeschool community that has come up out of the school because they do umbrella homeschoolers, secular homeschoolers. 
So we went to them immediately and we were like, tell us all the things that you did. And the first thing that they told us was we had to start a church. So we'll get, I'll get to that in a second. But we realized that tapping into that community that was there, right? And there was unschooling communities that had branched off of that in Nashville. And we just started reaching out to those groups. I reached out to the leaders of those groups and just said, we are working on founding this. And would that be something that we could promote on your group page? I made sure that I got permission from them to do that because I think that's just only respectful. And in getting their permission, then they approved the thing and I didn't get pushed away. And then I got to talk to a lot of different people about it. And people were like, oh, this is really interesting. And yeah, there needs to be more spaces like this. And, you know, there's plenty of people that are like, no, I'm not into it. I'm going to keep unschooling or I'm going to keep on this path or I want a little bit more structure. I mean, even the people at the farm, when they were like, we're not even as radical in the SDE realm as the Sudbury model is, because there are some structures within the school. So it was interesting just communicating, just reaching out to the community, and then it created this amazing community. And then once we had this platform and people were hearing about us and we started having meetings and promoting it all, I mean, we did everything through Facebook. Then we started educating them as we educated ourselves. So when we would find articles about the model or we would find articles about self-directed education, Peter Gray, we just started posting these articles and we became a resource for self-directed education in our community on top of the story that we told about the founding of the school. So we did that all on the Facebook group for founding a Sudbury school in Nashville. And that brought more people in because we were doing the combination of all of those things. Sharing our story helped to manifest it. I promise we would just go live and be like, y'all, we're about to go into a founders meeting. We're stressing because we're reading all this information that the state of Tennessee requires for you to be like different types of schools and what works with the Sudbury model. And in communicating that on this Facebook group, we helped the people that had signed up to join it because we had it as a closed group. We helped them kind of see the process. And I feel like it built this level of trust within the community And it went with the model of an open democratic process where you see transparency across the board. We posted everything. We posted our meeting minutes from the very beginning of the founders group. And then we eventually got an Instagram page and we would post pictures of events that we were holding, of our meetings, snippets of stuff that was going on as we were starting the school. Our tack has been Facebook and Instagram. And whatever model you decide on, or if you decide that you want to create your own space and however that wants to look, it's really important that you stay true to that model. I thought that 
when I received this advice from one of the founders at another Sudbury school, the one in Baltimore Arts and Ideas, Carolyn Chavas, she said to me, stay true to the model. Because when you start this and you start bringing people around you for a specific model, you have to make sure that you really understand it because people are going to want, they think, (laughs) they're going to think that they want the model as it is. And then when we start digging in more deeply, things come up that make it easier to go this path, but it doesn't exactly stay with the model, but it'll maybe help us open quicker. You have to like stay the path, stay the course and be patient. And there many times things came up that we did not anticipate and we had to just come back to the model. What will ensure that we can open this model authentically in our community? If you root your choices as you go through all of those glitches, because <laughs> you're going to go through glitches, and you come back and say, but will this allow for the model? In the long run, it may take longer but the foundation of your organization or however you decide to the space that you create will be more secure. And we in Tennessee found out very early on that we had to find a specific kind of space that would allow for us to open as a school under the category in which the state said we could open to ensure that we could be a Sudbury school. And it took us a really long time to find the right space. And we thought that we were just going to find a church that was going to rent us a little piece of space for just a cheap amount of money because we'd seen that happen at other Sudbury schools. And then we found out that that was not going to be the case. But every step of the way, we had to say to ourselves, but will the model function in this space? So not only were we like limited in our location, we also had to make sure that if we opened up a Sudbury school here in this space, would we be able to follow the model? And would there be the freedom that we needed to have for it to be an authentic Sudbury school? And we just kept that always at the forefront of our mind. We had a tremendous amount of hoops that we had to jump through, I've said again. Every state has different laws regarding schools and learning centers, co-ops, et cetera. So we began the research and we asked other groups in our community that had started like learning centers and Montessori schools, a Waldorf school, the farm school down in Summertown. We asked them what they did. For the most part, all of those schools had curriculums. Sudbury model schools do not have a fixed curriculum that you can send to the state so that they can check off all of their checklists. And because there is no curriculum, the only way that we could open as a school, as a fully functioning school in Tennessee, was to be a church-exempt school because the laws in Tennessee are very kind to churches because it's the Bible Belt. And we started a secular church, the founders, because we needed a church to umbrella the school so that it could open as a church-exempt school. It has to have a church to like 
give the okay. We just didn't want to hope that a church would take us on. And then if they didn't like something that we decided on in staying true to the Sudbury model, that they could just take our umbrella away. So we decided as founders to jump through the hoops and start the church first. So we started a secular church in Tennessee and we were incorporated in Tennessee. And then we went and spent an extra year. That's why it took us three years to open. We spent a year working on becoming a 501c3 nonprofit religious organization. And we received that exemption in September of 2017. So we began this journey in like November of 2015, started the founders group in January of 2016, realized about May of 2016 that we were going to have to start a church. And we began that process in May of 2016. And it took us until September of 2017 to get the exemption from the federal government. And then we began looking for locations. It's a commitment. It really is. But it's beautiful. It's a beautiful journey. You have to keep learning and extending your understanding of SDE because that is an unexpected too. It comes back around for you and it's fascinating. So you figure out what your deal breakers are. Ours was a school. The Sibri model is a school model. And no matter what we were going to do, we were going to make this a school, not a learning center, not a co-op, even though that would have been easy and we could have opened like the first year that we started looking, we said, no, we want this to be a school. What do we do to make it a school? And so we went through all of those steps and we jumped through those hoops. But while we were doing that, we studied for three years. We listened to podcasts. We read articles. We followed self-directed education folks. We joined the Alliance for Self-Directed Education and we joined the Alternative Education Resource Network, Arrow. We listened and then we shared that in that group that we had created. And so while we're founding this school and doing this logistical work, that group is growing to almost 500 members and they're all over and they're people that are interested in the model, but they're also people that just know founders and who join because they support the people that are going through this process, people that are just interested and that have discovered us that what was so unexpected is it all comes back because in doing that and keeping up and studying the model and listening to podcasts like Fair of the Free Child and then supporting podcasts like Fair of the Free Child and Akila's work, in doing that, we then joined this community and the community started hearing about things. And then we met with Akila and we were on the show and then people heard about us and we have like three students or four students of 18 students currently that are students that are enrolled because they heard about us on this show, right? On this podcast. We have a family that moved from Japan and they came to Nashville because they heard that Nashville was one of their possibilities to move, but they heard that we were opening on Akila's podcast. So if you stay tapped into this greater self-directed education community, you are going to reap the fruits of that community in the most unexpected ways because it's literally a beautiful bridging network connecting and everybody's walking this path. And 
we're all on our way to liberation and freedom and we take different routes but like the mecca is that and we all connect in the most unexpected ways and it's been beautiful so grateful for sonia fernandez leblanc for blessing us with those details join us over on patreon.com forward slash akila if you enjoyed this episode and are in a position to invest financially in this work you can do it for as little as a dollar a month or as much as a thousand dollars a month you can also do a one-time donation details for that also at patreon.com forward slash akila want to shout out our newest patron kim Thank you so much, Kim, for your support. I appreciate you. I appreciate all of you for listening and being a part of the Fair of the Free Child community. Join me next week when we'll be talking to another parent founder. In the meantime, Instagram, Fair of the Free Child, and of course, Patreon for more conversation, greater details, and further opportunities to get immersed in this work of raising free people in community. Much love. 